of 2006. Uh, a couple months later, there was something brewing. Uh, a fourth-year player, 22-year-old Akron native, LeBron James, was leading the Cavaliers on a fairly epic season. And, and though I had finished, though they finished just second in the standings, uh, most of you know LBJ was just finding his groove. Uh, the hype was intense. You couldn't escape it. James' name was on everyone's lips. Billboards heralded him as King James, a moniker that is still around, but it doesn't seem to have the same ubiquity as it did 10 years ago. The Cavaliers stormed through the playoffs, cruising to a 12-4 and record and the Eastern Conference Championship, and then they ran into the Spurs. And the Spurs were merciless and swept the Cavs and the King straight out of a parade. The Cavs had a comparatively dismal season the next year uh, before rebounding with two incredible first-place finishes. But they couldn't get out of the conference, losing to the Magic in 09, and then they lost to Boston in particularly bad showing in 2010. And the man they called the King, the greatest player on earth, had no reign, let alone a ring. He was a 25-year-old free agent, and was going to cash in. But the question was, right, with who? And Clevelanders know all too well how this went down. After discussions with, with six teams that could have paid him the kind of salary he commanded, LeBron James' decision was down to two teams by most accounts, and Northeast Ohio was sure that the native son was staying put. LBJ put on an hour-long special called The Decision on ESPN, and although ostensibly for charity, most of the country thought it was a self-aggrandizing spectacle and somewhat absurd. But the NBA had long been about style and show, and, and King James was going to have his moment. But when he decided he was going to take his talents to South Beach, that is Miami, Florida, for the non-sports people in here, to play with the heat, Cleveland erupted. Fans entered the streets burning jerseys. Days later, local businesses like yours truly collected unwanted James merchandise and sent it to homeless shelters in Miami, trying to turn a negative into a positive. Many of you were here, and if you weren't, it's hard to describe the feeling that was around town. Bo Miller, one of the organizers of the LBJ clothes drive for the Miami homeless, put it succinctly, it's like any breakup, you want to give your stuff back. Like a marriage that had gone bad. There was a context and there was a history that made the sting so acute. It was 2010, which was no ordinary year. Uh, Cleveland was neck deep in the fallout of the foreclosure crisis. The recession lingered on, and much of the town had already been economically hurting before the recession hit. And, and, and people were just clinging to the Cavs and LeBron James as like the one bright spot around town. No one knew about 2016 yet. It, it was still believe land, but at that moment there just wasn't much faith left. LeBron James was seen as faithless, an adulterer. And if Cleveland was going to get divorced, like any spurned lover, we were going to make sure we got in our licks on his way out the door. And funny, that was just about the sports team. But loyalty, fidelity, staying true, uh, they, they seem like intrinsic values of the human experience. The Bible teaches that we were made in God's image, and I'd argue that uh, our deep desires for faithfulness are rooted in that imago Dei. So we turn to Exodus 20, verse 14, and, and we see what's maybe the least popular of the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. And it's unpopular for several reasons. Uh, in the strictest sense, uh, adultery is something most of us don't strive for. Even Americans generally agree it's wrong. 84% of us in a 2013 Pew study. It's so distasteful that we simply cannot 
or, or will not imagine ourselves doing it, let alone that our, our spouse would do it. And, and it's also unpopular because for those that do commit adultery, it often seems to be like a permanent scar. No one likes to admit they're wrong. And adultery is one of those sins that seems like it's difficult to clean up. You steal something, you pay it back. You lie, you come clean with the truth. But I think there's this sense in our culture and our brain that, that adultery cannot so easily be undone. How do you erase an unfaithfulness in the past? But then I think it's also unpopular one, it's an unpopular one to talk about because it opens a can of worms. Because once you scrape beneath the surface a little bit, it digs into issues like divorce, pornography, lust, premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, and, and any number of variations on the one-man, one-woman marriage paradigm. And if you go just a little bit beneath the surface, it's the command that offends or convicts just about everyone. So we'd rather not talk about it. But when we look at Exodus 20:14, it's my contention that what we are to see, what we are to take away from it, is that the faithful God demands a faithful people. A faithful God demands a faithful people. So, as often in this series on the, the Ten Commandments, we're going to unpack this idea first by looking at the significance of this command uh, in, in the context that it was spoken to Israel. Second, we're going to look at the significance of this command now in Christ for those of us who call ourselves his followers. And then third, we're going to look at some general points of application by way of, of those two angles. So first, let's, let's look at what this command meant to Israel in the context of you know, the ancient Near East, Bronze Age, Israel's coming out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, they're at Mount Sinai, and they receive this command. Well, no, no fancy word studies this week, no, no linguistic tricks. The word is adultery, and its basic sense means exactly what you think it means. Adultery is consensual sexual relations between two people who are not married to each other, but where at least one of those two people is married. It means nothing more, it means nothing less. Ten commandments are given, that's it. Three or four of them, depending on how you account for them, uh, deal with our relationship with God. Uh, five or six of them then largely deal with our relationships with each other. But none of those except this one demand any sort of intimacy. What I mean is you can murder, you can, you can steal, you can covet, you can lie without any intimate connection to your fellow man. But adultery stands off from the rest of this list because it presumes a deep personal bond or the sin can't even occur. So it's a little bit different in that way than the others on this list. So we, we might wonder why in a short list of commandments would we include this one? And the short answer is that the marriage covenant is the fundamental and paradigmatic human relationship by which humans carry out our creation mandate to exercise dominion over the earth. Right? That's a lot. I'm going to say it again, and we're going to unpack it. The marriage covenant is the fundamental and paradigmatic human relationship by which humans carry out our creation mandate to exercise dominion over the earth. Let me back that up. I want to take a journey back to Genesis chapter 1 and, and Genesis chapter 2, very briefly. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the record of God creating human beings. And starting in verse 26, we read, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock 
and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I'm going to make some sweeping quick points here because this is not a, a sermon on Genesis. It's a sermon on Exodus 2014. But there's some, some, some background we have to understand. We have to understand how all of Scripture speaks together with one voice. First, God created human beings. He made them male and female. And he made them in his image. He blesses them. He grants them dominion. Specifically, he commands them to multiply and subdue the earth and fill it. To put this more concretely, human beings reflect their creator. In filling the world, they carry God's image across the world, marking it off as belonging to God, a living and breathing monument to the cosmos that Yahweh is king. And under Yahweh's kingship, we would be little kings and little queens, stewarding God's creation. And procreation is a key part of how that's accomplished. After all, we can't fill the earth without more people. And we can't have more people without procreating, at least not yet. We're getting there. Uh, but jumping into Genesis 2, we'll hold that thought, and then jumping into Genesis chapter 2, and we get some more specifics on the creation of human beings. There, man is made first, but he's incomplete in a way, without a suitable partner. So God creates his complement, a woman. And it reads in, in verse 24 of, of chapter 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What we have there is the first marriage. And it becomes a paradigm with which we are to understand all marriage. Marriage is a covenant partnership between two individuals of complementary sexes, male and female. In fact, Genesis 2 isn't merely the first marriage. You ever think about it, but not only is it the first marriage, but it is the first human-to-human -human relationship. It will inevitably spawn a, a variety of other human relationships. But the first and the most significant human relationship that ever exists to another human being is a marriage covenant. Those who are married or have been married likely know that the relationship to a spouse is immediately the primary and most significant human relationship one has. And it's amazing how quickly it changes. The day before you're married, you have a lot of friends and you have a lot of people that are around you. The day after you're married, that one relationship is solidified in a way that you never understood was possible. Now, of course, not every human being is called to marriage. That much is, is clear from the very testimony of Scripture. Um, scripture calls singleness a gift from God. But marriage is also called a gift from God, and it, it, by the numbers, it's clearly the gift that's given to the majority. Doesn't mean one gift is better than another, but most people wind up with the, the gift of marriage. And so it's paradigmatic for how humans typically relate to one another. In, in a fairly recent accounting, about 80% of Americans 25 and up have been married at some point in their lives. And obviously, if you've removed from the equation those who are 25 and older but are planning at some point to get married married, or hoping at some point to get married, the percentage would go up 
much. So marriage is the context in which creation is commanded to be fruitful and to multiply. When, when these ideas and these dictates are, are to be carried out. And it's the largest driver of fulfilling the creation command to subdue the earth. So when you consider this context, you might notice that the command that prohibits adultery has a lot in common with the command to remember the Sabbath day. Because both the Sabbath command and the adultery command stem from the account of creation. They are fundamentally intertwined with God's creation order. But what should capture our attention here is this notion that the one flesh relationship between a man and a woman is so sacred, so inviolable, that it is never to be compromised by engaging in sexual activity, the act which symbolizes the two becoming one, with someone other than one's spouse. It would be saying too much to say that marriage is the backbone of the creation order. That would be saying too much. But it's certainly a vertebrae of God's design in creation. And with someone with a, a bulging disc at the bottom of my spine, I can assure you that you don't mess with anything around a vertebrae without causing some serious pain. So do not commit adultery is a command that strikes at the very heart of who we were created to be and what we were created to do. But you shall not commit adultery. Notice what's not stated. Nothing is said here of rape, of polygamy, of polyamory of premarital sex, of extramarital sex, more generally, homosexuality, divorce and remarriage, or any number of other sexual activities. And so it might be seen as odd that more isn't said here under this heading. In, in Hebrew, it's two words, you shall not commit adultery. Other commands on this list have way more detail about them. Why so short and specific? Well, there's a number of reasons why I think that God specifies adultery here. But I'll give you two. First, um, we've discussed, as we've looked at other commands on this list, that many of the commands here are themselves paradigmatic commands. There's summary commands that are fleshed out later in the law with more detail. And that certainly seems to be the case here. Uh, as a basic paradigmatic command, adultery relates to other sexual sins in that the expected biblical pattern was for a male to marry a female, which marriage is consummated by a sexual relationship, and that fidelity to one's partner was sort of morality 101. That was, that was just sort of the default understanding of how this works. And so in a society that takes that for granted, heck, I think it's still significantly true in our society, though, though changing rather rapidly. Other sexually related sins were likely comparatively rare or not quite as destructive. I think it, the combination of how common adultery was and how absolutely destructive it was made it perhaps the greatest threat to God's creation of marriage. So it's not necessarily to 
um, excuse any of the other ways that we can move away from the paradigm. But adultery represents a very serious and common breach of the paradigm. Second, adultery is a great summary command because it points to a spiritual relationship beyond the human-to-human relationships the Israelites experienced. See, frequently, if you read in the Old Testament, you know, in fact, right after they receive this law from Mount Sinai, they'll have one of these episodes. The Israelites frequently chose unfaithfulness to God. And as they entered the land of promise, they, and even before, like I just said, they, they encountered the gods of other nations and other peoples, and they chose to worship those gods. And God sent out prophets to announce their sin and, and to call them back to Yahweh. And in doing so, God often refers to their idolatry as adultery. As the Bible moves out of the law and into the prophetic material, we see the the prophets of God calling the Israelites out of their sin, calling them to return to Yahweh, and in doing so, God calls them adulteresses, and he calls their pursuit of other gods adultery. It's an appropriate metaphor, if you think about it. Israel rarely, if ever, formally rejected Yahweh. Rather, instead of just outright rejecting God, they tried to have other gods on the side. Perhaps it was Asherah. Perhaps it was Baal. God figured himself as the husband to Israel. But Israel tried to accrue the benefits of a relationship in addition to the one she had with her husband. So while there were other sexual sins, many of which were extraordinarily serious and punishable by death, adultery sort of uniquely and precisely prefigured Israel's unfaithfulness by having other gods on the side while still pretending to be loyal to Yahweh. That's sort of how adultery works, isn't it? You're feigning loyalty to a spouse while engaging in other behavior on the side. So that's the context for Israel and the law. What do we do with this as Christians in Christ? Well. In Christ, the concerns for adultery are not wiped away. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. But that doesn't mean that we don't have to deal with this sin. Because rather than, than Christ removing adultery as a, uh, uh, as a category of sin that we need to pay attention to, Christ shows us that unfaithfulness goes well beyond sleeping with someone who isn't your spouse. In Matthew 5, as Emily read earlier, I'm going to turn there real quick, just so I have it, quick reference. Part of the, the Sermon on the Mount. You notice, we, we've, if you've been here, we've read uh, pieces from the Sermon on the Mount several times during this series. Um, there's a sense in which the Sermon on the Mount is sort of Jesus' commentary on the law, but that's for a, another sermon, another day. He says, you, sh- you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Right, we just read that, Jesus. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. As we said with murder, you know, we, what's the difference between attempted murder and murder? Except the success rate. And what's the difference really between uh, 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 an absolute hatred and an attempted murder, except that the attempted murderer isn't as afraid of repercussions. When you have that kind of hatred in your heart that would lead you to a murder, 
what is it? Uh, your fear of going to jail, the fear of what people would think of you. That's, that's really the difference between the hater and the attempted murderer. And the difference between an attempted murderer and a murderer is the success rate. It's sort of silly. And so Jesus says, hate is right there with murder. And so similarly, Jesus wants us to dig into our heart. He, he says the desire, the lust to have a woman or a man who is not your spouse it is different only in that the social convention or the fear of consequences prevents you from acting on that lust. That's the difference, right? The, the difference between a, a, a guy who wants to sleep with someone other than his wife and, and, the, and the guy who actually does it is, is a fear of consequences, whether they think they can get away with it or not or, or any number of other uh, uh, minor considerations. These are not exactly noble lines we're drawing in the sand. But notice what else. Jesus doesn't make a distinction between a married person and an unmarried person in this teaching. So if there's any doubt in the Old Testament, and rightly understood, I don't think that there should be, Jesus makes it plain. Adultery is a catch-all for sexual activity outside the one man one woman institution we call marriage. And what's more, outward obedience to an external code is not righteousness. Outward obedience to an external code is not righteousness. You are not righteous because you have a checklist of the things you do and the checklist of the things you don't do and you're able to check all those boxes. That is not righteousness. Jesus is, is showing us that righteousness is a heart turned and tuned to love the things that Jesus loves and to hate the things that Jesus hates. Sort of an aside, but this is an important one. One of the great evidences of salvation how do we know that we've been saved? How do we know that we have been rescued from our sin, rescued from the eternal consequences of our sin in hell? How do we know that we have been grabbed from the pits of death by our Savior, Jesus Christ? One of the great evidences of that is a hatred of our own depravity and a love of our foreign righteousness. What I mean is this. Christians hate their sin. Christians aren't sinless. They're haters of their own sin. We don't merely hate the consequence of our sin, the social repercussions of the, the fallout of our sin. Oh, I stole that at work, but it's okay. I wish, wish I hadn't gotten fired. No, we don't, we don't just hate the consequences of our sin. We don't just hate that it makes us look bad. We hate the fact that we're unrighteous. We hate the fact of our unrighteousness. And we hate the way it hurts our Savior who bled and died in our place to forgive us our sins, to forgive all who would turn in faith and repentance and worship Jesus. But on the flip side... Christians love our foreign righteousness. Note, I didn't say our ingrained righteousness, let alone our self-made righteousness, because Christians should understand more than any other person that we are deeply unrighteous people. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian ultimately is that the Christian understands 
that he is unrighteous and a sinner and desperately in need of help. See, we turn to Jesus in faith when we do that, when we turn to Jesus in faith and we repent of our sins, his righteousness is, is grafted onto us. It's credited to our account. It's not our own righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from Jesus. It's a foreign righteousness that has come to dwell in our lives like an immigrant. It is a love of our Savior and His beauty that compels us. So we falter and we fail, but we hate our sin for sin's sake. And we love Christ's righteousness for Christ's sake. That is the life of a disciple of Jesus. So in Christ, the matter is not whether all of our actions fit the rule book. Rather, the matter is whether our heart loves the one who wrote the rule book. And what's more, the marriage analogy is heightened in the New Testament under Christ. Christ is pictured as a groom waiting to marry his bride, who is the church. Who he died for. Paul writes as if the marriage has been concluded when he writes in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her to make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. To present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. John, the Apostle John in Revelation prophesies of the day when the church meets Christ again. He writes, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So here is the wonderful picture of Christ, the faithful husband. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. See, God is a faithful God, always standing by his promises, always willing to forgive our sins if we return to him. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And he is making us into his image. You see, God is faithful. And so he demands a faithful people. He stands by us despite our imperfections and our weakness and our evil. And so he demands faithfulness from us. And in Christ, he is working to make us faithful. He demands faithfulness first in our relationships with our spouses, if we have them. And as if we had a spouse, if we don't. For we don't know whether or how he might bring that about. We need to be faithful not just to our spouse, but to the creation ordinance of marriage. We must throw away lust and every action that springs from lust. We need to be faithful to this even when it's hard, even when I would suggest others are unfaithful to us. Just as God does not divorce us when we injure him with our sins, so we should remain faithful even when we are injured or harmed by others 
questions. Now, this is not a sermon on divorce, but obviously the, the message touches on it. So I'll, I'll address it briefly. And I think Malachi 2.16 gives the general feelings of God on divorce. The prophet says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithful. So God's word on the matter is that divorce is a violent unfaithfulness. That said, there are arguably some grounds for divorce provided in Scripture. And we do not have time to unpack those. Again, this is not a, a sermon on divorce. But we understand that God is a God of faithfulness, and he's a God of fidelity, he's a God of forgiveness, who perseveres with us through our sins and the ways in which we hurt him. And so we are to be like him. We are to be like Christ and to be faithful even when we are, he is faithful, even when we are unfaithful to him. What would that do to our marriage relationships? What would that do to our friendships? What would that do to our family relationships if even when they are unfaithful to us, we remain faithful to them, even as Christ has remained faithful to us despite our constant sinning against him. I think that at least gives us the paradigm and the, and the jumping off point for thinking about uh, divorce um, from a Christian perspective. Again, scripture does seem to give some warrant for divorce uh, in, in several places. Um, we're not going to get into those passages this morning. Um, but I think our, our framework should not be, when can I get divorced, so much as, how can I remain faithful? That should be the first question we ask, at least. So how then shall we live? What, what application can we take away from this? Well, obviously, if you're married, or you're thinking about getting married, don't commit adultery, right? That's um, the obvious point, the straightaway point. But I think that we need to recognize that, that God spells out this sin in particular because one how absolutely destructive it is combined with two, how absolutely common it is. I don't think we recognize how destructive it is. I really don't think we do. I don't think I've gotten it through my brain how destructive this particular... We, we, Christians tend to get all up in arms about all sorts of varieties of sexual sins. But there's a reason why adultery is the paradigmatic one. There's a reason why adultery is used as the, uh, as the, the, the sexual sin of sexual sins. And I think we need to recognize how absolutely damaging it is because of how fundamental the marriage relationship is to the way God intended creation to work. And so what adultery is doing is it's denying the, the faithfulness that God implicitly places in the concept of marriage, and it destroys the very framework of one man and one woman. And I, I don't think we usually appreciate how absolutely destructive this sin can be across our society and it is and so the upshot of that 
is that it's incredibly dangerous. And yet, we are all moved towards this thing. Maybe, maybe you're a rare bird who is not, never tempted, uh, but most human beings I know uh, have been tempted by lust. And if you're married, then uh, a temptation to lust would be, by definition, a uh, temptation to adultery. But as Jesus points out, there's a sense in which it's adultery even if you're not married. He's, he's even speaking to uh, unmarried uh, disciples and wannabe disciples here and says, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. Well, I'm not married, Jesus. I didn't say you were married. I'm saying it's adultery. And so we have to fight this sin. We cannot take it as, uh, as just something that, that is going to be dealt with and something that's going to be done, something we don't talk about. Again, it seems to be the most unpopular one. It seems to be the one we don't want to deal with, we don't want to wrestle with, and yet it's there. It's in the ten. It's got to be dealt with. And so how do we fight sin? Well, we fight sin by God's grace. We, we fight sin by the, the gifts that God has, has given us. We, we fight sin uh, by the power of the Spirit, but we fight sin in the context of our Christian community. I do a, uh, I, I fell off of it for a while because um, we, we've gotten a little too complicated, but I, I've mentioned before that one of my uh, best friends and I, we, well, he lives in Atlanta now, and we still talk almost weekly uh, to kind of keep each other in check. And, and one thing we do um, uh, hopefully every week, is we, we check in and think, you know, how are you doing in any number of given sins? And one of the ones that we talk about is, is lust. You know, we talk about, how, are you, how did you struggle with this sin this week? Not, not, you know, did you have zero struggle with this week or were you 100% perfect? You know, there's no week, name a sin, it doesn't matter. Most of us, there's probably no sin that's as, it's either 100 or zero. Right? We, we have different levels of, of struggle from week to week. And, and so we address it, and we talk about it, and we pray for each other. Most sins uh, build and grow because they're in the dark. But whatever comes to light becomes light. Isn't that what the scripture says? And so, For whatever reason, it's more socially acceptable to say I, I said something that wasn't true, and I've got to come clean about it, or um, I'm, I'm harboring some hatred or some animosity toward this person, and uh, I, I need to get off that chest. I need to reconcile with them, or, or, or it, it, these things seem to be a lot more socially acceptable to talk about and to discuss and to wrestle with, but we don't like to talk about lust what Jesus says is adultery. And so, this has been my challenge to you. Uh, a number of you in this room, I know, because I've had conversations, it's so awesome, are, are engaged in, um, in discipling relationships where either you're, you're discipling someone or they're discipling you or you're mutually discipling each other. Uh, and, and as we've been talking about in our growth groups and I've been talking about from the front here and we've been talking about in members meetings, um, this, this is what following Christ is about, uh, is making disciples and discipling disciples. And, and so this is part of your Christian calling if you are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you are called to make disciples and to disciple disciples. You can call it by another term if you want, but the bottom line is that you're helping people to know who Jesus is, and you are helping people to grow more like Jesus. So when you're in those relationships, make this a focal point intentionally. You've got to make it intentional because if you don't, here's, here's the, the fact of the matter is, is that you won't talk about it, right? Unless it's on the table, hey, when we get together, we're talking about lust. Unless you throw down the table and say, we're going to do this every time we talk, every time we meet. 
you know how you know it will slide off the table because it's the one we don't want to deal with. And so put it in the context of relationships. If you're not doing that, if you don't have any of those relationships, can I plead with you? If you're a Christian. To be engaged in those relationships. Where there are individuals who are challenging you and, and pushing you to be more like Christ. Where there are people that you are challenging and pushing to be more like Christ. Again, it could be a, you know, a, a more mature Christian with a weaker Christian. Uh, it can be people on the same level. There's different ways of accomplishing it. But we have that call in our lives because it's one of the means of grace is that we are not called to live the Christian life alone. But as a church... As a people of God called out to, to worship Christ together. And so there are no solo Christians. And we have to wrestle with this. So get those relationships. Make a point to have those relationships. And put this sin on the watch list. Because if it's not intentionally, again, that's, I mean, that's not Holy Scripture saying that that's just, to me, that's just common sense, human experience. There's a lot of other sins, you know, that I'll talk about with other guys that just comes up. But this one just has a tendency to not just come up. And so it's got to be intentionally on the table. And that is for women also. And in our society, we, we tend to uh, think that this is a problem for men, it is not just a problem for men. Men tend to be more visual. So they might tend to, to see a girl walk by or see a picture on the internet and, and go down a, a, a wormhole. They may be more likely to do that. That doesn't make women immune to it. And I don't know. I've never been a woman. But um, I, I'm guessing that since that's our kind of way of thinking in this culture that women are probably even less likely to talk about lust than men are that would be my guess I don't know that for a fact and that could make it even more insidious because there's not even a context at least most Christian guys have like a context for awkwardly talking about lust um, I don't know I don't I, maybe I'm wrong but I'm I wonder if women do um, this is an equal opportunity destroyer. Secondly, that was a long first point. Second point of application. We need to remember Christ's faithfulness to us. We need to celebrate Christ's faithfulness to us. We were singing this morning that um, God is our rock. He's unmovable and unchanging and unshaking. And, and so when we sit, when we fall, we are still firmly planted on that rock if we are in Christ, if we have received the sacrifice that he offered of himself on Calvary and his resurrection from the dead, then we stand on the rock. He's faithful and, and he is good and we need to sing about it. We need to praise God for it. We need to pray about it in adoration and thankfulness. We need to confess it among each other. And it'll do no good, you know, it'll do no good if, if you're meeting with one another and, and saying, you know, I've been really struggling in lust, and then the other one just, just beats you up about it. That's not going to do any good. We need to point each other back to the rock that is Jesus Christ. Point each other back to his faithfulness, despite our unfaithfulness. And third, we need to take as I kind of hinted at before,
God is the unadultering God. He is the non-adultering God. He commands us to not commit adultery because he will never commit adultery with his people. And if we are going to be his followers, if we're going to be his children, if we're going to be like our Savior, our groom, Jesus Christ, then how is that going to impact our relationships with our husband or wife, with our friends, or with our eternal relationships, our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? How often do we let an offense or an injury sever a relationship? Would Jesus allow an offense from his bride to sever his relationship with his bride? The answer is no. And so that even as Jesus was was long-suffering and, and is long-suffering and patient and loving and faithful, we are committed to being long-suffering and faithful and patient as well and forgiving. And so where in our lives, this is, you know, you, you work this out, but where in your life are you maybe being tempted or maybe have already crossed the threshold of divorcing yourself from people. Where if, if you had done those things to Jesus, he wouldn't have divorced you. Does that make sense? Like where you have, You've cut yourself off from, from person X because person X did or said these things. But if you had done or said those things to Jesus, he would not have cut you off from himself. Because we serve that kind of God, that should change and shape how we have those relationships. It doesn't mean those people become our best friends suddenly. It doesn't mean that we share all of our deepest secrets with them necessarily. But it does seem to indicate that if Jesus would love us and forgive us and, and, and uh, make amends with us, that we would be those kind of people also. A faithful God demands a faithful people. Even beyond our marriage relationships, are we faithful as God has been faithful? People will know what kind of God we serve if we are faithful to our relationships as well. Let's pray. Father God, Forgive us our adultery.